And we are live back with another episode shifting the narrative on everything autism. I'm Torin Kearns, and as usual, I'm joined by the autism stage herself, Mama Baden. How are you? I am good. Um, I'm really good today. It's Monday, and I have a lot of energy for Monday, and probably because of our guest today. Um, and I'm going to throw a little loop into the introduction um, and preface with a story that I've not shared with Dina. Uh, Dina and I in 2018 were at the World uh, Autism Organization Conference, and I saw Dina present. And when I tell you, I've never typed so fast on my phone. I mean, I have like an entire note section of like everything you say, because you say it so eloquently, but so like that makes so much sense, right? With just conciseness. And um, I remember it was either later or the next day and I saw you at the lunch table with some of the other participants. And all I kept thinking was, oh, I wish I was at that table. I wish I was at that table. I wish I was at that table. So I'm excited today we're at this table. Um, so thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to uh, give our listeners a little idea of who you are. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to finally meet you too. And and uh, thank you for being such an avid cheerleader. Uh, I do have to tell you the irony of how you describe how I present is that it's all actually echolalia. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have any notes in front of me. Um, I just absorb huge amounts of information. And when I find a way to say it, that connects with people, I tend to be very repetitive about it. Um, it. It's kind of funny in a social setting when I'll be out with colleagues and we start talking shop, I'll see certain colleagues like uh, kind of exit the situation because they know precisely what I'm going to say, precisely how I'm going to say it, because it's exactly how I say it every time I say it. So um, I'm glad it's working. Um, but uh, I just, full disclosure, um, I'm currently a PhD student at Adelphi University on Long Island, uh, planning to finish my dissertation, hopefully by May. Um, the dissertation is looking at administrative burden or governmentally created red tape um, as experienced by uh, late diagnosed autistic women applying for disability benefits. Um, I am, uh, I was uh, at Towson University tr uh, teaching transition to adulthood for over five years, but with the dissertation weighing on me, I decided to bow out next semester. Um, I'm sad about it already, but um, it was necessary and uh, it has been a welcome relief not to have to gear up to teach again this semester. Um, I am autistic. I was diagnosed at 40. Like many late diagnosed folk, I got my diagnosis uh, as a result of attending conferences to try to advocate for my son who was diagnosed at three. So his journey has looked very, very different. Whereas um, I was socially conditioned to try to mask and fit in and blend in and to kind of repress myself. Um, we always just intuitively and then later consciously uh, advocated for my son to just be the best he could be, however that evolved. And so um, he's he's experienced some trauma, uh, mostly educational trauma, 
Um, but he uh, is extremely resilient because we've just unconditionally embraced who he is. And I think that's kind of a snapshot uh, as we look at autism as a culture and a community. You know, we have a lot of young people um, who have uh, been raised in a more um, accepting setting uh, in their families and their households, and they're coming out of it much healthier and well-adjusted. Um, I watch it as my daughter parents my grandson, even though he's uh, probably not on the spectrum. He is neurodivergent. And I just see, um, uh, I see them do things like, you did really well at dinner tonight, honey. Do you want to go outside and get the wiggles out? You know, just such informed parenting that um, I think is reflected in some of our younger people today. Not always, but but sometimes. So I'm I'm really excited to be here. Um, and uh, I have other things I do. You can just you know find me on LinkedIn or or Google me, and you'll 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 learn more about me and see some other things I've done. So. By the um, way, that is a that is a massive down statement. She's done uh, quite a lot. Um, you mentioned on another podcast that you were sometimes a little uncomfortable. People read off the list of all the stuff you've done. But if you look her up, she is, you might be one of, if not the most accomplished guests we've had on this podcast. And I'm just really excited to have you on. <laughs> you know what? It's my Thomas to train. I'm just doing what I love to do. It gives me so much pleasure. So um, I sometimes feel, uh, uh, I don't know, uncomfortable with embracing all I've done because it's just fun for me. So, you know, why don't I don't know why we can't give ourselves credit for what we love, but you know, uh, that's just how we're wired, I guess. My best friend describes it as um it's just who you are, so it doesn't seem anything phenomenal. Exactly. Yeah. She says that all the time and I say, I don't understand why people say I'm working too much and oh my gosh, how do you do all that? I'm like, I don't get it. I don't get it. She's like, it's just because who you are. Like we are who we are. Um, but speaking of that, we are who we are. Um, I think we want to talk a little bit about masking, um, which I'm so glad. First of all, I'm glad I learned um, the word masking years ago and that I, I'm, I'm, it's always growing to understand because I know that we're just getting more and more information, insight and research. But uh, it's one of the things that our listeners, our parents do not hear, you know, they hear all of the other stuff, but they don't hear that. And so I'm excited about us, about us doing a little discussion on masking. Uh, Torin, do you have any specific questions or can I just sort of? Uh, yeah, you can just start us. I, I do have some questions, but I'd like you to sort of get us down a certain road, sort of set some things up, so. So it it kind of was came out of um, you know the timing is perfect for all of us to be here today. Um, Dina's schedule is very busy, and it was a post that we both did, and masking came up, and so I said, "Come on and talk about it." Uh, so, what would you say to a parent, I guess, who hears the word for the first time? Like, what's a way to help them sort of? understand what that means because you know now we're talking about children and recognizing that it's not just something that adults are doing well i always try to start with families on things that they can identify with right so um you know i might say to them uh we wear different identities in different situations with different people you know um 
how you want your child to present themselves on Sunday morning at worship may look very, very different than how they are in the backyard late on a Friday night with their friends. Um, we as adults present differently in a job interview than we do when we have our girls night out or our boys night out. Um, and uh, what, what I think is important about it is to recognize that it's not an autism thing, right? As I've just described it, it's just a typical human behavior. And it's, it's ways we adopt behaviors or mannerisms or language or cultural um, contexts um, that help us to identify with and engage with other people. Um, in that framework, there's nothing dysfunctional about masking. It's a normal human trait. It's just what we do. However, um, for many people who are not autistic who engage in masking, they have, um, not all, but many have had an opportunity to create um, or to unearth, if you will, because I do believe some of our core features are, are almost primarily embedded. Um, we get to unearth who we really are, who our authentic selves are. And um, I think sometimes with autistic people in our efforts to help them acclimate to social situations, we start to disenfranchise them from that core identity. Um, or uh, in the case of many people who are late identified, um, their core identity doesn't really develop because they're so busy trying to uh, blend into what parents want, what teachers want, um, you know, what other people in their lives expect from them. And so we do see uh, many people who receive late diagnosis experiencing a tremendously fractured sense of self and identity. Um, and so when we read the research that talks about the dysfunction of masking, when we read the research that talks about uh, the sometimes very tragic outcomes um, in terms of self-harm and suicide and autism, um, in those circumstances, it's my hypothesis, um, combined with my lived experience and, and working with thousands of autistic people, that what we're looking at is someone who never had an opportunity to develop their own true sense of self. Um, and um, it creates inside a person, at least in my lived experience, this sense of being, um, I don't know, you don't know who you are. And when you're wearing one identity um, in one situation, you know underneath that there's something else that's more true. And so you, you get this sense of being artificially creative, you know, and sort of, I don't, I don't know, imposter syndrome always seems to me to be aligned with productivity, but, but an imposter in terms of who you are. Um, and it really took me a huge evolution and a huge relocation uh, to believe, to, to develop what I believe is my authentic identity. I was in my fifties, um, because I had been borrowing identities. Um, and so a lot of the research is, is casts masking in this very negative connotation. And, um, I became a member of the interagency autism coordinating committee a few years ago. And I spent over 10 years just attending meetings as an audience member, trying to understand the culture, the rhythm of the meetings, the do's and the don'ts, 
because I really had high aspirations for being a member of that committee. It was very, very important to me. And um, I did get the opportunity to present uh, opinions that were a part of public testimony. I got to participate as members to working groups that were examining various things happening in autism. Uh, and it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I joined the IAC. And, <clears throat> and my interest in masking came from me being part of the IAC. And, you know, I, I was receiving feedback about how well I blended in and how, how well I was able to manage those very high pressure, very politically charged meetings. And I realized how much I studied the culture to make that happen. And I had a little, uh, and this is the pattern in, in how I've learned to live my life. I, I, hit a, I hit a wall, I hit a conflict, and I have to deconstruct it to figure out what the source of that, that sense of um, unsettledness comes from. And I, I was concerned that in engaging in those very conscious actions around being part of the IAC, that I was um, engaging in masking in a way that was dysfunctional, uh, in a way that was sort of an imposter behavior, um, that I was sort of um, folding to neurotypical expectations. And so I broke it down and I deconstructed it and I analyzed it and I thought about it. And what I've concluded for me, and I think it's not uncommon, is that uh, if you have a fractured identity, and you're using masking or camouflaging or code switching, we have a lot of language around it, um, because you internally don't have a strong sense of self um, and you feel unworthy if you don't adopt these behaviors, then that's the dark side, if you will, of, yeah. of masking and camouflaging. What I concluded though was with the IAC for me, I have a strong sense of identity. I know who I am. And um, that doesn't go away when I'm engaging in masking in that environment because masking doesn't replace my identity. It becomes a cultural adaptation and a tool that I use to be more successful in, in that environment. Just like I've described to you when I use the echolalia I'm engaging in right now, I have you know, use various ways of communicating this to come up with a script or, or a way of communicating it that has meaning for the recipient. I'm translating, if you will. And so I was able to make peace with how I utilize masking as a tool and a strategy in that environment. And I was able to recognize that the real work we need to engage in is helping people to, um, you know, really, um, engage in identity formation um, and help them to make up the, the, the gap in their developmental process where identity formation was supposed to begin. So when I look at my son who was diagnosed at three, he's never had an identity formation problem because his identity was always embraced and accepted unconditionally um, in terms of socialization. Uh, we wanted to help him develop the ability to be polite, but being polite doesn't change your identity, right? Um, being polite is just some customs you adapt to um, uh, interact with people in a, in a, in a positive way. Um, and as a result of that, 
he's never had this sense of fractured identities and borrowing identities as compared to myself or many people like me who adapt those identities um, because their core sense of self hasn't form, formed yet. Um, so, you know, uh, when I look at the research we need to do, when I look at the interventions we need to create, I, I get so excited, Stacey, at your work because you're helping not to change the child, but you're helping to give the child tools while changing the parent's perspective on what creates a happy, well-adjusted autistic individual. And, and so that's why I, I champion your work is because I think you're on the right track. I think that that's going to create a lot of healthy, well-adjusted people. Um, and I share your frustration with the parents who want to continue to try to mold their child into someone who they were never meant to be. I do have a question. So on autistic social media, which I've talked at length having issues with, there seems to be this prevailing idea that male autistics don't mask at all, mainly because most people are thinking of the white male stereotype you see in media and stuff where we're just going around being like socially awkward and not caring about anybody else's feelings and stuff. But, and obviously this would be in a general sense, I want to add that, but what are some of the differences, if there are differences, do you see between people who present as male autistics masking and people who present as females masking? I think it comes down to effectively how males and females socialize. And I'm glad that you you mentioned male presenting. You know, um, first, let me back up and say, um, I, I don't uh, ascribe to uh, a male phenotype and a female phenotype because our culture, our autistic culture is just too gender fluid and gender diverse. And we have many males who present in the stereotype of female autism where, you know, whatever you would assign to being more along the lines of a female and vice versa. Um, I have a very male brain. My brain is very logical, um, less likely to be emotional. Not that I don't have strong emotions, but I just manifest very differently um, than a lot of females in society. So with that caveat stated, I think when we look at what we you know, historically referred to as female social interaction, what we see is more nuance, um, more hidden curriculum, um, more um, inference, whereas I think traditionally male presenting individuals, this isn't autism, this is just how people are, um, tend to be uh, socialized where it's okay to be more direct, more succinct, um, kind of more transparent. Um, but again, that's very blurry, you know, um, a, a, it goes both ways, right? And so I think when you look at the complexity of so-called female interaction, um, the, the, the cognitive burden for social engagement is much more in depth. Now, I'm, I'm clearly not a person of color, but I would say that when you're um, autistic and a person of color and male, it would not surprise me to have someone report that because they have, are already engaging in code switching behaviors and they're already engaging with um, a higher level of burden to um, socialize in a way that's frankly more embraced by the dominant culture, 
that it is equally as um, burdensome cognitively as it would be for what we traditionally would think of a female presenting person, you know, with all those complexities and layers and nuances, because there's just more demand. Um, does that? No, that's perfect. Exactly. Like how you laid that out, how succinctly you laid that out. It's just, that's a perfect answer. And thank you so much. But uh, Stacey, no, I drag no, you know what? Now, you know, I have my phone, like, right? <laughs> and, and, then, and then at some point through the presentation, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't get it done. I'm just like snapping pictures of the PowerPoint. <laughs> because it's like just listening to just gold. I mean, it is just, it's like, it's almost like your words wrap everything in a nice bow that make it very clear, right? For, for me, I don't know what other people's experiences are, but I've shared your words with lots of my um, families and it makes an impact. It really makes an impact. Uh, you know, the one that I share often is the one about the accommodations, right? Because uh, a lot of parents will ask me, you know, will my child grow out of autism? And these are usually my parents that I work with parents in a lot of different cultures. And so culturally, there's a lot of pressure just for the non-autistic folks <laughs> to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, like that's your three choices. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, so um, they're concerned, right? Uh, because of the family dynamics. And I mean, they literally like shun people that don't talk to them or invite them to stuff. But when I share that um, quote about you don't grow out of autism, you grow into autism by maximizing your accommodations. And they're like, oh. And so then we kind of talk about that. But I, I have a couple of things that I wanted to sort of like get some expansion on, if everybody's okay with me sharing. Two, I'll share two quotes that I've written down. Um, and listeners... I want you to rewind and listen to everything that Dina said when she answered Torrance's question because it was so good. One of the things that I wrote down, and I don't remember where you said it, if it was, I think it was at the conference, but you said, autism is not the problem. It is the failure of the systems around me. And I know you and I share the frustrations in Torrin as well. Um, can you, uh, and, and you went on to say the harm comes in trying to make us indistinguishable from our peers, which ties into sort of the masking concept. Um, so what, as a parent, um, an autistic individual, but also a parent of someone who um, has accepted and embraced your kiddo, how, how would you sort of expand on the concept of the problems and uh, what parents can do, as you have done, to not try to make your son indistinguishable from their peers? And just be who he is. Yeah, um, well, part of it has come from, um, first of all, immersion in the culture and the community, right? Um, um, I do think, I'm just going to back up a minute and say, you know, when I think about Kiernan, I think about Lydia uh, Brown, when I think about just all these dynamic, fierce young people who are really trailblazers, um, you know, um, I think they bring an activism voice to this that was just long needed. But I also have some sadness that there aren't more of us, you know, the white hairs out there who have 
just gone through such a personal evolution to self-actualization um, to have deconstructed literally every aspect of their lives. Um, what we have to offer is quite different, um, not better or worse, but just a very different way of being. And I think it can help inform that activism. So I, I'm sad that there's not more people. I'm 64 years old. So I, I wish there were more of us uh, not retiring from this, but actually taking on the mantle at this point, because I think we have a lot to offer. But um, that has really informed how I advise parents, because I see the whole trajectory now. I see the whole lifetime um, and the lifespan and how we have to start constructing um, successful interventions at preschool, um, actually with intuitive infant parenting, if we're going to meet the end of the trajectory, which is a happy, well-adjusted, um, successful individual. And none of that, by the way, involves employment, right? Like we tend to define success by jobs and, and that's not what I'm, our goal was for Patrick to be happy and included in society. And whatever came with that was good enough. Um, I would say to uh, early parents that if we're really gonna be effective in helping these children become happy and well-adjusted, the first thing we need to do is emancipate parents from social demands, mm -hmm. whether it's coming from their family system or the school system or you know, their, their cultural environment. Um, we need to empower, empower parents to be the change makers um, so that, you know, if someone's not, not comfortable around their child, they have the courage and the confidence to say, then this just isn't a fit for us. We don't love you any less. It's just not a good time for us to be in relationship. You know, um, I, I have disenfranchised from the majority of my, my intimate family members because they just can't conceptualize why a 64 year old woman is still pursuing higher education. You know, um, Wait, what? They, <laughs> right. Um, they can't conceptualize um, the, the ex you know, without remorse or regret, the extreme loss of career that I experienced while I was parenting my son because I couldn't I couldn't achieve personally and protect his ability to have access to whatever he could accomplish. Um, that's really hard if you're a single parent. It's really hard if you don't have that family support. Um, and so I think we need to start building culture and community that's a family of choice in those situations for those families. And I know that's part of what you do too. Um, I would encourage these uh, early parents to just have incredible creativity and flexibility um, and to honor uh, their child's evolving autistic identity. You know, um, my grandson right now um, is into soccer and he's into his online video games. And he went through this beautiful window where my son and my and his nephew both were engaged in Legos, like COVID created a Lego thing for them. And it was so beautiful. And then all of a sudden, now that he's got access to people again, Legos are kind of not important anymore. And so, you know, I had to translate for my son and my, you know, that um, I know this was a great bonding experience for you, but he's really not um, interested in, in Legos for, for a while. Maybe in the wintertime, he'll be interested again. But right now he has a best friend. He's, he talks to him from this, you know, iPad from the time the sun comes up until the sun goes down at night. 
and this is his world and, and his interests have changed. So I was able to help my son recognize, just like your interest has changed, his interests have changed. But that unconditional nature of the parenting that both children have experienced has been wildly successful. You know, I didn't do as good a job with my non-autistic child. I'll, I'll confess. I, I, you know, she was super smart and had executive function issues related to ADHD, um, anxiety problems that I was not as sensitive to because her neurodiversity did not present itself as dramatically. And so I realized retrospectively that my standards were astronomical for her. Um, she, she and I have talked about that. We had an estrangement. We had a reconciliation. Uh, we're still working on it. Um, I'm giving her freedom to just speak directly to me, which I'm not sure she understood I needed, not only wanted, but needed. And, and so our relationship is evolving, but, um, but it starts with that unconditional acceptance. You know, um, I remember standing in front of some thing at Disney and we wanted to go to dinner and my son was just having huge meltdown. Um, and it's because it had an animatronic snake and he has a snake phobia. You know, I didn't say, oh, you'll be fine. I didn't say, oh, we have to go anyway. Um, I just said, okay, I'm going to go get the food and I'm going to bring it out here. Even though we wanted to sit in the air conditioning, I'm going to bring it out here and we can eat out here and, and go from where the snake isn't anymore. You know, um, it, and in the generation before mine and the one before that, that was considered coddling the child. That was considered, you know, um, giving them control over a situation when they should always be deferential to parents. And um, yeah, no, <laughs> like that's not the way any child should be parented, but particularly this, this group of kids who are just, just uh, they're, they're fragile in a way that's different from non-disabled kids, and they're fragile in that way for a little bit longer, a little bit later in their developmental um, process. That's why we call it a delay, right? So, you know, my son's uh, anxiety about snakes was still prevalent well into his teens, and we just simply respected that, you know. Um, and then I came home one day, and he says, you wouldn't believe what I did. I said, what'd you do? He goes, I watched that movie, Snakes on a Plane. Oh you God! Know, um, he <laughs> That's was in the high zero to sixty when it comes. Yeah, if you're afraid yeah. of snakes, it took him till high school to figure out how he was going to deal with that. And I want to just touch on the fact that he went to a summer camp where we had copperhead snakes in the water, and there was a time when a snake presented itself in the water. And not only did he freeze, I froze. Not only because of the snake, but I froze because the water was too cold. Sensory mm -hmm. issues. So I couldn't go in and rescue him. I had to get a counselor rescue him. So now he has an associated trauma with a reptile. And it's been pervasive throughout his adult life. You know, it wasn't just a preference or, you know, uh, a childhood fear. This is this is a true legitimate uh, phobia. And, um, and it was triggered by a trauma. He has issues with elevators because once when he was a kid, he got on and mom did not. And I hadn't taught him to stay on the elevator. So he got off on some random floor. Thank God it was a special education conference oh, because Jesus. they realized he was a lost little boy because it was all teachers in the building and they brought him down to the front desk. Um, and, and my daughter was with us too. So she was traumatized on top of it. 
So now he's, you know, when we go to get on an elevator, even at 32 or 33, he holds my arm before we get on the elevator. So we have to realize that that these relatively small issues can become major life-altering circumstances. Um, and so, you know, you can't overprotect them. You have to give them encouragement and help them build resilience and the ability to come back from things. Um, but we also have to respect that they're experienced with a greater intensity. And I also think in his case, he's a visual thinker. I'm not, but I learned enough about visual thinking that I think when he envisions um, that camp, I think he's transported in time. I had one client's mother say, "My daughter, for my daughter, time is fluid. It's liquid. So when a, he thinks about um, uh, that snake, he think he isn't just thinking about having been at camp. He is at camp. He's he's literally transported back there, almost in the way we describe PTSD flashbacks." I do believe that our autistic visual thinkers experience those historical events in real time in the way they process it. And again, we have to just conceptualize that as best we can, and we have to integrate that into how we parent and, and how we accept that their experiences are different than the way we might experience it. One of, one of the things you mentioned I'm not sure if I like the particular term fragile. Not that it's a bad term, but I feel like I'm trying to inform my thoughts. I feel like, like you said, some of us are very visual. So it's almost like film or it's almost like a PTSD flashback. So I have that too. I feel like it's less fragility and more, and maybe this just comes from a male perspective, but it's less fragility and more if your mind works like that, where you're transported in time, where you're having these flashbacks, you'd be and you had a traumatic event, you'd be afraid of it too. And let me just mention, I think I used the wrong word. I said fragile. And what I think I really meant was vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I think we're more vulnerable to internalizing those traumas. Um, and we actually need assistance through co-regulation at unpacking that and, and learning how to be resilient. It's not a state of being, it's a learned experience. So without that partnership of someone to help us co-regulate and help us deconstruct the trauma so that we can process it, especially in our early years, I think that we're particularly vulnerable to it, making um, a, a deeper impression, if you will. I hope I cleared that up. That make more sense to you? And like I said, I, I wasn't making any accusations or anything. I'm just no, no, no. I didn't hear that. No, I just wanted to clarify. <laughs> I'm having a real adventure. I'm working on a project with two colleagues, and they work on pe with people who have OCD and autism, right? And so much of the uh, therapeutic approaches with OCD are about desensitization. And and so they'll say, well, this family really wants their child to be able to go to a birthday party. And I very blatantly say, why? Yep, yep. <laughs> you know, why are you working on this kid when what mm -hmm. you need to be working on is empowering the parents to, to modify that experience? So maybe the kid comes from the last 30 minutes. Maybe he leaves after the first 30 minutes. Or don't go and save your money. Don't go and save your money. I always tell parents, so who's the party for? And they're like, well, it's for the kids. 
Okay, so do you know how much money little popular Lucy's mom spends on birthday presents a month because she's invited to every party? Do you know how much money you can save not going to birthday parties? What a great strategy, oh. yeah. And they're like, oh, and then of course, it's really about who's the party for if it's for the kids, it's not for. But I also acknowledge, I understand as a parent, you want to feel included. I get it. You had a dream in your head, but we're going to have to do that a different way. It's not going to work. I well, love and the church one's can, my favorite. <laughs> yeah, you can bring up headphones. You can, you know, suggest a shorter endurance time for it. Um, I have to make sure to check myself for cultural competence because I know, for example, in Hispanic families, birthdays mm -hmm. are a huge deal, you know, in African-American families are really important uh, family cultural experience. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I don't, I mean, I clarify, like you said, who's the party for, but I also have to check my whiteness at that point and say, you know, um, okay, this is important in your, in your family system. And as a result of that, my job is not to encourage you to avoid the party. My job is to help you find a way to make it work for exactly. the child. Exactly. Right. You know, I will, I haven't really um, shared a share story. So before we finish, I'll share the story of one of my moms from Southeast Asia. And they have lots of big family, like, oh my gosh, it's always large gatherings, right? So they bought a new house. And part of buying a new house is apparently you have like 300 people come through your house and they bring you gifts and you cook lots of food. And it's just this two day event, right? So she was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, there's no way he's going to, like, it's just going to be overwhelming. And I said, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to plan. So she planned. She had an area for him to go. She had him, he was okay to go in his room. She didn't, like, force him to stay out. She gave everybody rules around do not hug him if he doesn't want to be hugged. Give him his space. And I will never forget the joy on her face when the event was over and she said, we had no meltdowns. Everything went smoothly. And I said, yes, because you prepared, you accommodated, you told other people and advocated for him. Um, now that takes work, right? And as Torin says, some parents don't want to do the work, but uh, if you don't do the work, then it's harder because you have meltdowns. And um, children are not sitting still for three hours in the mosque. I'm sorry, that's not happening. <laughs> Yeah, we, we, you know, we used to have big family Christmases before COVID and it was my sister, her, her adult children, their grandchildren, uh, my cousins, same, you know, tiers of family and um, where whoever was hosting, we would say, you know, Patrick can bring his laptop or do you have a room with a TV that's not part of the main house? And for many, many years, Patrick would go in that room and family members would kind of pop in and talk to him and pop out. But in the one year right before COVID, the last Christmas we all gathered was the first year that he could cope with being in the chaos. And, and he stayed with us the whole night, but he also had that place to go to if it was too overwhelming. It's usually yeah. him and a pet in that room, you know, uh, because then they get to uh, embrace each other. But, um, uh, you know, I, and I think that's it. I think it's really about helping parents to plan like you described. I mean, that's ideal, right? 
um, how do we build success instead of how do we avoid conflict um, is a very different framing of, yes, of the ideas. So, it is. Um, and and I, I want to say my last words are in terms of, uh, you know, I love everything that you say. I mean, clearly, I literally have. Sometimes I'm like, am I like stalking Dina? <laughs> like everything she says. But it's just such really great um, just insight. And so I love the fact that you talk about um, parents are really the key to kids being able to know who they really truly are, right? I mean, like you said, we all, you know, have to make adjustments. Um, I mean, we all have been in the workplace where we would like to literally just go off on our boss because they're just incompetent. But we've learned we can't do that. Um, or there are severe consequences and we can take the consequences of course, but if we don't want to. So parents listening, um, and I say this all the time, doesn't matter, therapist, we're not gonna be guaranteed good teachers. And yes, the world can be big, bad, ugly, big, bad, ugly place. But if your children can come home knowing that who they are is okay and that you're going to accept them, they're going to be able to have that resilience to be able to go back out there and that's the reality. The world is not always going to be nice. It's not always going to be accommodating. But if you are that safe space, then um, at least they know they have that. And, and that goes to what you were saying in terms of your son knowing who he is, right? I know who I am. Um, and I'd like to, uh, I know that you're working on your PhD, but at some time, I would love to invite you back to talk about the concept of having a late diagnosis and is it scary to learn who you really are because you've not been yourself for so long because it's been squashed like that's what sort of pops in my head that sort of people who like leave uh, you know I'm thinking uh, this may not be a good analogy but you know people who leave those religious communes right they really don't know who they are and it's hard for them to go into a world outside of that and figure out who they are because it's been ingrained. So maybe one day we can discuss that. But Torin, when you get when you get your PhD, you can come back on. <laughs> hey, you know, don't make me wait that long. This is what fuels the PhD. Um, but um, I've enjoyed talking to both of you, and um, I, you know, I. I love to come back anytime. I just have You're so many things that we could. You're invited anytime you'd like. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, I just think that, um, I think that we can help autistic people to be really, really phenomenally well-adjusted human beings if we just, you know, can help liberate parents from social demands that probably made no sense to them either. <laughs> um, nope. but, um, I think we can talk about a lot of different things, um, you know, and, and I do think it's really important, you know, when I was teaching at Towson, I had a lot of early intervention people who were like, why am I here? <laughs> but after they heard the voices of other autistic adults talk about their early childhood experiences, and they were able to see the whole trajectory, um, you know, uh, meeting my son who, uh, presents, uh, you know, if, when the world is predictable, he has low support needs, but mm -hmm. if anything shifts in his system, then, uh, the, 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 the time of, uh, helping him orient into the new change is very labor intensive and, and create, if, if unpredictability pops in, it's, it's challenging for him. And so when people meet someone who is not 
and now if he's on a stem, he's extremely verbal, but in terms of that back and forth, it's still not there. It probably never will be there. And, and when that happens, when they can meet him and experience him and see him and still know that he got a bachelor's degree, I think it helps parents whose kids are, you know, where my son was at three or four to look ahead and say, okay, maybe there's possibilities and to push those doors open. I remember Temple Grandin talking about one of my clients, um, you know, who got a bad response from vocational rehabilitation. And I said, they told her she was no Temple Grandin. And she says, you tell them when I was 24, I was no Temple Grandin either, yep. right? Yep. And so our, our goal with our son and what I encourage parents to do is presume competence, you know, uh, first and foremost, make sure they have a communication system that works for them, whether that's sign or AAC, you know, whatever. And if you can communicate with them, then you can help them to develop those resilience skills. But remember, one of the key components of resilience is a barrier. Yeah. It always starts with a barrier and, and you work through the barrier and you learn tools and strategies to address those barriers when they present again. That's essential to resilience. It's not just a way of being, it's a learning process. And that's what we have to do. We have to help our families and our kiddos become, uh, learn the lessons to build resilience. Well, thank you both for having me. I can't wait to come back again. Uh, and Torin, I wasn't expecting you today. So that was a, a successful, pleasurable experience. You're, you're, you're amazing. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. This is Stacy set up the whole interview and I'm very glad she did. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you guys. Torin is just a gem. And Stacy, that's why we're working too. Shift the narrative on everything autism. See ya.